Hope everyone's doing well. Welcome to the Magia Mindset. Today's guest is a privilege to have on our show. He has been a sports psychology coach for Olympic athletes, coaches, teams during the Olympic qualifications as well as the Olympic Games. He has developed and implemented player, parent, coach, sports educational programs for U.S. soccer, MLS, youth soccer clubs, all across the U.S. He has recently launched a podcast with ex-U.S. national team player Jimmy Conrad called Minds Your Business. He is currently a professor for California State University of Dominguez Hills. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome our guest, Dr. Lee Hancock. Roll the intro. Lee, thank you so much. I mean, I know you're busy during this time. I know it's, um, it's been crazy nonetheless for 2020. I truly appreciate you putting in the time to kind of come on this podcast and um, talk about the beautiful game in every aspect, especially on the mentality part as well. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. I mean, uh, I am busy, but at the same time, I feel not busy. You know, at home, all your work at home. So I'm constantly available for my sons to get out and about. So uh, now, as I've said on every other podcast or Zoom meeting I've been on, the more distractions, the better. So thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. So one of the main things I wanted to get into, you've had a good um, time and experience amount of years within Olympic events and being a part of that. And I wanted to kind of um, get into discussing your Olympic experiences and what is it about those events and festivals that is unique? If we can kind of get into that in the overall aspects, what is it that makes it special? What is it that makes it stand out compared to other mm-hmm. events? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I went to Rio, um, I guess, four years ago. And we were prepping for Tokyo this year, um, and we'll go next year, so we're, we're still in preparation. But I think a couple of things stand out, and, and one is the preparation. Um, it's, a, it's a cycle. It's a four-year cycle. And so you're, once you're done, you're, you're pretty much talking about the next one. And that, that's a long journey of ups and downs, and all with the idea of, of getting to that next point. You know, I liken it to, to climbing a mountain that's that you're probably going to have to fall a couple of times or scooch over a couple of times and take a different line. You know, I don't know anything about mountain climbing, although I watch them climb mountains. Uh, and so I think them being patient and thoughtful about, about moving and being, being thoughtful about taking your losses and understanding as much of a competitor as you are, it's part of the process. Um, so I think the preparation and everybody that goes into that preparation from the coach to the physios, to the, to the, um, to the trainers, to the, to the doctors, to everybody going into those, um, events are just amazing. And we plan them out. We have a, a calendar over the four years and we plan them out in terms of peaks and valleys and what those look like. And we, and we try and game, um, when we're going to peak and when we're going to valley, and we've, we've done a decent job. Um, and so I think the preparation going into those. And then at the Olympic events, um, you know, it's amazing. I mean, Rio was, it's funny because it was as safe as it could possibly be, you know, um, and people talked about it being dangerous. I mean, I know the military was there and everything else, which, again, as you start thinking about the mental aspect of that, it's like, wow, okay, there's there's a lot of safety precautions here, right? And maybe... It's not going to be the same in Tokyo, right? Or, or I think Paris is the next one. Um, but that's a unique experience in terms of the, the safety aspect of it, right? And then not being, um, not really thinking about that until you're on the ground there. Um, and then just the, like the magnitude of the event mm. and everybody that wants a piece of you. Mm. From media to family members seeking tickets to friends and colleagues seeking tickets, you know, 
from the athletes. I'm not talking about me, um, <clears throat> but the athletes, and then, and then having them manage those pieces. And these are things we're not even talking about the event itself. <clears throat> we're not even talking about the performance. And so preparing athletes for that and then helping them manage that while they're there is really part of our responsibility as a team surrounding the athlete. And so I'd say those are those are two big things that stand out. Again, forget about the performance, right? Because the performance, we could talk about the you know pressure and we could talk about being able to concentrate and, and those types of things. I, I feel like those are like, okay, yeah, people understand that that's, that's a part of it. But I think quite honestly, it's all of the things surrounding the events because as you think about it, they only play for an hour, two hours, right? Or whatever the time frame is. And then they, and then that's every once every X amount of days. And all of a sudden you have all that downtime. Oh, how are we managing that downtime and all the surrounding pieces to that? So I think those are big. Um, yeah. And then getting into the performance, you know, it's, they've trained for so long and we've, we've we're pretty wired tight in terms of how we're going to approach those events that yeah they can't feel their legs and they can't think in that first match you know well that's normal you know that's just normal for everybody and then once you get through that first one and you get the wiggles out all of a sudden you know things start to become a little bit more um like a normal event although how normal can it be when it's when it's the olympics and so yeah i think I think the preparation is key. I think the off-field pieces are key in terms of what those look like and how we manage those and preparing everybody around the athlete for those. And then the event and, and, then, and then moving through that event is, um, um, you know, something that we take, we take in stride, but we've, we've planned for it. No, it's, it's great how you say um, performance and the preparation for it. Um, so I had an earlier interview with Omid Namazi as well as we discussed with Tony as well, that validated with Manchester United. So Omid worked with Carlos Quiroz at the time that worked alongside Sir Alex Ferguson at Man United. And one of the main things Carlos told Omid was they had everything planned from the way they get from home to the facility, what they eat, what they put in. So all they got to think about is performance. That's Mm -hmm. what, what they got to think about. And Tony even elaborated where it was, yes, but a lot of it they do themselves as well because uh-huh. they are the tip of the arrow. There's elite, elite. But it doesn't come down to only Alex Ferguson. That's what we discussed too. It's a whole organization. Mm-hmm. So do, I want to kind of get into how do you guys prepare to just for your athletes to maximize performance and the team effort, it goes in behind the scenes that people don't really know because they're like, oh, Lee, Lee's on the sports psychologist. He did everything. They just did that on performance. It was all Lee, but they really don't know. It's a collaborative team effort from the whole organization to allow Lee to do this and certain X and O's to do this for it to all fall into place for the ultimate prize. Yeah. What is it that you guys try to lay out yeah. for the athletes so they they have to only think about that performance and limit their pressure yeah. what are the what are the what are the if we want to discuss a daily routine yeah. before an event going on yeah. like you were in rio uh, if we can discuss one of the athletes that you were maybe closer to with the organization we you guys were planning their day of what yeah. does that day look like well so let's talk about the overall piece and then your second question of my kind of role and then we'll talk about that third piece in terms Perfect. of Perfect. The um in terms of planning, I mean Tony's spot on and and I know Tony uh as well and then and, and obviously Alex Ferguson is um legendary in terms of a leader. Um for for us it's about preparing for something that perhaps is unexpected. Right? And um and so as much as we want to plan our day about XYZ, you know, and, and going through this piece we know that there's going to be a bump in the road. There's going to be a hiccup. You know, a bus isn't going to show up, you know, or the food's not going to get there or, or something. And so we, we kind of prepare, we prepare everybody to then manage that, right? And, and, and understand that those things happen and once that, that we can't get too bogged down in that because that's really important. Um, and then in terms of, of um, 
you know, a day. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite honestly as simple as you would think about it. And we trying to make it that way so that, that it is normal. You know, we try and say, we're going to wake up at this particular time and go for a walk. And then we're going to, if they would like to meet with me, they can meet with me. And then I meet with the staff and then we get to the venue for a training. If it's a training day and then we come back and then it's, and then it's, um, you know, taking care of anything in the body that the athlete needs. And then we have a team meeting and then you meet for dinner and then they're on their own and then they can be with family. I mean, it really is kind of those things built in place. I mean, just like you would build a youth team, you know, those youth coaches that are out there, it's no different, you know, and we try and make it so it's not um, totally confined, you know, because I have heard horror stories of friends that have been in World Cups where it's like you're totally isolated. Who wants to be isolated? That sucks, you know. Um, I have a friend who was helping uh, a federation. I won't say which friend and which federation um, <clears throat> was helping them sort out a uh, venue in Tokyo to train at. And uh, this particular federation had a had a, a place in mind, and it was so far out that the person, the local person who was helping them said, you can't do that because the athletes will feel isolated, you know? And that's not what you want, right? Because again, back to the daily routine, they should be able to see their kids, you know, and, 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 and wives or husbands or significant others. <clears throat> and that's a really important piece because again, the, the goal shouldn't be a routine to take them out of their routine, right? It should be how can we make it as comfortable as possible, right? So that they're just going into a regular performance. And everybody knows it's not one, but the more normalized we can make it, the better. And then in terms of my role in that, um, I'm a small cog in the wheel. You know, I mean, for me, I try and educate coaches. I try and educate doctors. I try and educate everybody around me on the psych side of things as well. I'm, I'm big on empowerment. How can I empower people with the sports psych um, theories and 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 how they can they can help the athlete based on where that athlete is or isn't or needs to be. Um, and sometimes it's just, it's, it's a well-placed chat, you know, from a coach that isn't me that makes all the difference. You know, an athlete's laying there, and I have said to my students, because I'm also a professor, to my future physical therapists or occupational therapists, look, you guys are on the front lines. Because sometimes an athlete will say something to you as you're, as you're you know, giving them a quick massage or taping them up or whatever it is. And that, that little tidbit that you said to them makes all the difference in terms of their comfort level. And all of a sudden they're, they're down on, on the pressure o meter, you know, which isn't real, but it's real. And then they can go and they can, they can have the rest of their day being comfortable. And so, I mean, yeah, that's it. And, and it's really kind of as simple as that with my role. I mean, it's more complex than that because athletes will come to me with pieces, but, but I'm available, you know, it's like I'm available for them. And um, yeah, so I mean, that's the routine. You know, that's the routine. It's, it's so crazy that people want to hear that 10-page essay. They want to hear mm-hmm. the long stories about it's got to be more than that. And, yeah. you know, the whole saying is that simplicity is genius. Less is more. You know, mm-hmm. giving those one word impactful that it, it carries that one word, carries so much with it that it kind of mm-hmm. sets them up. And we're not overcomplicating things. Those are the things about, I think, individuals like yourselves and elite individuals that know how to be selective with their words and moments because that's the special time. But if we think like we're insecure and we got to say a lot to make ourselves feel like, oh, I think I prepared them. But what you actually Mm -hmm. did, you confused them. What you actually did was you frustrated him. What you actually yeah. did, you put more pressure on him. And, yeah. and I think those are the moments that when you think about what you just said, it's simple. Yeah. It's saying those moments. It's, but even, even to your massage therapist, being detailed. And you might be the last person they hear in their mind. So yeah. even the words you say, I mean, those are powerful stuff. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think too, so... I was with a group last year um, in a world championship and um, leading into the world championship, we felt comfortable. And um, 
while we were there, it was a two-week event, and um, as the week went on, we we got more and more confident and comfortable. And that wasn't just down to the individual, that was down to the collective and the group and the people that surrounded the group during those two weeks. And there was family there and the athletes were working together and I was out with them frequently. And um, it really was how their relationship, which is huge for me, um, was able to continue to, to transform and improve because the as the group solidifies and you know group cohesion is huge. This is what great coaches do. This is what great coaches do, right? Um, that cohesion continued to flourish, and the coach that they had is brilliant. He's one of the best for me I've ever worked with. And um, and so as they continued to to go through the week, they started to count on each other more. And and if we can and if we as a staff can allow that to blossom and bloom over these periods, where because really. You know, as you think about World Cups and you think about World Championships and any sport, it's about those th- those teams that peak. It's a tournament, right? It's not it's not a league season where you have to be best over the year. You know, it's a and if you can move through that week and people can start trusting each other a little bit more, and they can feed off each other, right? Which is again goes into the planning that we spoke about that Tony spoke about, right? And, and your and your your previous colleague, uh, Omid. Um, if you can do that, but you can also bring the collective and empower each other. All of a sudden. You know, you've got all these people rowing in the same direction, you know, and and all, and it bubbles up, and then that is, that's that's the juice right there. That's the juice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're just talking about cohesion, and like, uh, I think Pierre was talking about it in the um, World Cup 2010 with the U.S. team. He's like, the really the biggest thing that stood out was the team camaraderie. They were very close, and I think, especially at the national team level. I think the national team, you get such a short amount of time to work with these elite individuals. The, the, the technique and the amount of effort they put into maximizing that has already been put in prior to getting yeah. into that event. So a lot of it with the coaches, with yourself, you guys are trying to team build, team build. If yeah. you can kind of get into that, what, what is a team building activity? What is it that... Um, it's signs for you that you're like, mm, we got to try this one for this activity. Is there like a special activity or is it something simple that you try to select prior to coming in? What does that team building activity look like during a event that you guys run? Yeah. So I don't do much of the team building fall in my arms type of stuff. Um, I think there are folks that do that who are really good at that, quite honestly. <laughs> um, that's not me. But I do that um, metaphorically, I suppose, right, in terms of building trust. Um, and we spend a great deal of time at the beginning outlining everybody's expectations of each other mm. uh, and, and building that, that framework of trust. Um, because I think that's such an important starting point. And so we do that through conversations. We do that through talking about purpose and how we're going to move towards that purpose. Uh, and then we provide an opportunity for everybody to feel safe as if they've got a voice. Mm. You know, That's a really important piece when I'm working with teams and, and providing that voice in uh, team meetings, um, in individual meetings with the coach and, and how they move through those interactions uh, and so providing that opportunity to feel trust and to, and to feel safe as they, as they move through these pieces, um, but being on the same page with their purpose and whatever their product that they're creating is, right, is really important. And I think those types of cohesion pieces are really built up through time and, and through interactions and through honest interactions at, at real meetings, right, where we're coming together and we're talking, watching video, we're doing these types of things, but it's also in dinners right it's in those off times where we're having a glass of wine together right and and it's all those types of things where you're building that culture for lack of better terminology which i've written about extensively and and talked to really great people about um in terms of how to build those cultures but i think it's it's creating trust through conversation and it's it's creating a shared purpose um and creating again a safe environment for people to be able to feel heard Right, because when you do that at the most critical moments, that is going to bubble up 
right? And there are always critical moments in matches. There are critical moments leading into matches. And if you have that shared purpose and you have that trust and you have that safe environment where you can say whatever you want to feel whatever you want, and all of a sudden, again, you're rowing in the same direction and you go, Shh, I can't row. No worries. I got you. Let me row. And then you pick me up when I can't row. And those, those are, again, built up just, it's not magic. And for lack of better terminology, organically. I mean, it's a wacky word, but, but it's really important that you can't force culture, but you can create culture. And you can do it thoughtfully and methodically. Um, uh, and that's the art to the science, I suppose. And it's quite honestly, again, it's what great coaches do. You mentioned Ferguson, right? You, you mentioned Pierre's experience in 2010. I remember when he came back from that because I've known Pierre for a long time. And, you know, you could see how special it was, right, in terms of that role that they were on um, and, and what the coach did during that time. And so, yeah, it's um, um, yeah, I think those are the things, you know, for me to, to build the cohesion. Um, and, and everybody plays a part. You know, some of the best things I've heard from, from coaches um, are ones that provide people with a role and a responsibility. Because when, when everybody understands it, even if they're a, a bench player, which um, Jill Ellis for the U.S. team called them game changers and not substitutes. And I was like, dang, that is good. You all have a role and a responsibility. And when you know you have a role and responsibility, you are willing to row during the difficult times because you know at some point your row is going to be the biggest. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's yeah, some coaches are brilliant. Just really brilliant at it. I loved uh, every section of. There's three words: the trust, the team, camaraderie, bring in. Even that word that we use of Jill Ellis, the game changers. That's yeah. so, so, so simple, but yeah. so smart and insightful. Because you can easily call them bench players, but when you look at those individuals on the U.S. team, especially, mm-hmm. are probably big names for their own clubs sure. at the at the levels of. So the way they word it. It's yeah. huge. It's huge. Where big personalities, so, big personalities, if big you're person- personality, and you're not starting. So like, what? Come on, that everybody plays a role. And if and if that player maybe got two minutes, three minutes, and is speaking highly of the coach, that goes a real good importance. Yeah, I want to kind of get into that trust and that team building. There was a because I, I I'm I'm in the same boat with you. I don't. I, I know a lot of people are good at it. They drop themselves, catch them, that kind of whole team. Yeah. And that works for some. That's great. But the things that I've seen connect is exactly what you discussed. There was a, I believe it was a listen I was having on and it was discussing dreams. The activity was dreams and kind of nightmares. And, and the dreams was basically you, you, gather your players or your individual company people or family members, whoever it is, and you start to get deep conversation in what is your dream? What is your dream? Someone would open up, I want to win the Olympic gold. Why do you want to do it? To make my parent proud, to make my dad proud, to make my family name proud. Or I want my child to get um, married and have two children because it makes me rewarding that I did a good job as a parent, so on. And they said at the end of the conversation, People were crying. People got emotional with it. And it started to really open up and create trust because they became vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So I really love how you discussed about the word trust and it, how important the team building plays in bringing a team together. And really, I mean, worst comes to worst, I think the most success is if these players that never met have relationships going after, connecting naturally organically like you said i I love that word as well organically it it does become something special the lifetime is i mean lee when you look back at anything in life i think the festival when you look back at it's great but it's the memory the memory you created and the lifelong friends you probably stay in touch with still it's more valuable so i truly appreciate you sharing it and i kind of want to segue into our Next part and kind of like our core of our uh, interview is the mindset, the mm-hmm. mindset. I want to kind of get into the mindset of the elite, mm-hmm. of the ultimate elite and kind of comparing what is it? What is it that's different from the elite? The reason they're there. I don't feel 
I know people like, ah, oh, he got lucky. Yeah, sometimes luck plays certain aspects. You got to be in the right place, right time to get seen by the right person to have those opportunities. But the mindset they go through, mm-hmm. the experiences they face, the adversities they, they, they have to go through and the relentless they have behind it. What is it that makes those elite that you've worked with personally at the highest mm-hmm. who they are? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big one. Um, it's funny as I'm, as I'm looking at your background there with the IAX of a, a friend and um, colleague now. Uh, mm. He just finished his psych doctorate in John O'Brien. So Johnny is a U.S. international and was in O2 and certainly was one of our, our best and most talented players and played for Ajax and went over there when he was 17 or 18. And um, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and we were talking a little bit about this, but we were talking about, you know, what, what those athletes are, right? There is a relentless pursuit of improvement and they are never satisfied if you're Mm. talking about the highest level now that can wear you down Mm. right but when you get to the top level everybody's good everybody's good who's going to ix 17 or 18 there was a relentless and tenacious pursuit of improvement they are competitive with themselves they are competitive with each other and every time they do something they're thinking to themselves how can i get better how can I get better? You know, think about the stuff that's come out recently that we would have been privy to with the Jordan series mm. on um, ESPN and, and Kobe's untimely passing. But then we've gotten to revisit what made him so special um, and, you know, endless programs that we've all had a chance to watch over and over and over. There is a relentless pursuit of improvement. But within that, there is a, a focus on detail. And the smallest of details, and if you look at the two best players over time recently in football, it's obviously Ronaldo and Messi. And if you look at the detail that they put into their physical selves, right? And picture Ronaldo here, right? But he's also mentally just as good as they come. And then Messi, just in terms of how he picks out these little pieces of where he's going to be and how he's going to get there and what minute he might decide to go ahead and exploit that thing that he, by the way, took notes on 45 minutes ago when you moved into this space and created that opening for me. That relentless pursuit of improvement on the minute level is what separates for me the great from the greatest and, and at the biggest moments, right? Because as you prepare to do those things, you're also managing and balancing what is also a hallmark of these folks is managing those moments in terms of pressure, right? And and looking at those moments and being, it's not easy. You know, if you think these people don't get nervous, they do. I've been to those moments. I've seen those moments. And obviously, I haven't been around the Messi and Ronaldo's of, of the world in terms of, of football at, at the World Cup or the, the Champions League or any of those high high places, um, finals. Um, but those those moments of pressure, they have an ability to, everything just kind of slows down for them. And everything becomes just something that they can manage. And again, to get there, there are all kinds of butterflies and all kinds of, of mixed emotions and feelings. And everybody deals with shit, you know. But the relentless pursuit of improvement and the managing of that moment in terms of them making it your highest possible performance level are really what separates those folks. And how you get there, constant, constant um, training, but not just training, different types of training, different types of scenarios where you're having to manage these moments under chaos, right? And if you think about, again, you know, Barcelona's legendary training, you know, in terms of how they approach things, Messi has seen those things a million different ways, a million different times. And Ronaldo the same because he puts himself through those things, whether it's at Manchester United, right, whether it's at Real Madrid, and now on to Juventus, and of course with the Portuguese national team where he has a different role, right? And at his advanced age, a different role. But, but again, you think about the relentless pursuit of improvement 
and, and managing those pressure moments, it is the preparation of those and paying attention to detail and pushing yourself in a place in a chaotic moment and solving those problems where everything then becomes this place where it's like, oh, I've seen this before in different degrees uh, and, and now I can go and solve that, you know? Um, and I think that's that to me is what separates those folks. And I think some of it is probably innate, you know, they've got it in there. But who knows what somebody's ceiling is, right? And so for them to be able to build to that level, it's not for me as a coach or a sports psych to say that guy's got a ceiling, right? And so it's your job as an Alex Ferguson, right? As a pet, right? As Jurgen Klopp, let's put him on top right now, right? Um, to look at somebody and go, I will maximize your ceiling and push you through that ceiling to give you an opportunity to manage those pressure moments, right? To, to be relentless in your pursuit of improvement. And, and so to create those training environments to say, I believe you need to go after that, then, then gives you the, the impetus and the, and the confidence to go do it. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. That's a big question. Big question. No, I think you hit a lot of great stuff with it. And I think we brought up Cristiano Ronaldo. We brought up Messi. We brought up Michael Jordan and we brought up the late Kobe Bryant and, um, very sad story with mm -hmm. everything involved in it, not only Kobe Bryant, with several families. Mm -hmm. But if we discuss, let's just discuss those four players. To me, I even go another step with relentlessness, obsessive. Mm -hmm. I think those ones that are literally breaking records, like I'm talking on Messi and Ronaldo breaking records, and the way um, Kobe and MJ were on just continuing to gr grow. But when you even hear it, it's kind of like, I won. And then I want to let you know that I won. Mm -hmm. Like in a, in a way that, okay, I beat you. I'm better than you. Check mark, check mark, check mark. It, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of those were created with a fire. I mean, I heard story of Ronaldo Cristiano. When he went to United, he was skinny. He couldn't ping a, drive a ball to hit a post. Paul, Paul Scholes would let him know. You can do all this razzle-dazzle, but you cannot even ping a ball, a fundamental thing. And what you said innate, he probably had that of saying, you know what? You're questioning my game. I am who I am. I'm going to take it to another level now. He had that within. Same thing with MJ. Now, I think I've seen a lot of, let's say, innate individuals not flourish because of the lack of environment or the lack of leadership they were surra surrounded with. Like if uh, Ronaldo doesn't go to United with that leadership, with those mindsets to push him, if MJ doesn't go to North Carolina with Dean Smith and then goes into Phil, do they become who they become? I'm, and I'm talking about they probably become elite, but I'm talking boom, like they are obsessive. Their mentality is great. How, how important is the environment's role? And yeah, so, so let me, let me first hit on the innate piece because, uh, and then let me talk a little bit about some of the qualities of some of those four individuals you talked about. Yeah. The, uh, the, the thing about innateness and, and I'm, I'm, I'm likely talking to a lot of youth coaches out there. Even, even you have young pros, um, this is the thing about innate. We don't know. We as, we as educators, we as coaches, we as sports, like, I don't know what you're born with and not born with. And so I would suggest we should treat all of them with the opportunity to get that highest piece, which I think, again, these best managers in the world look at somebody and go, I can get this out of you. I can squeeze everything out of you to get there. Because the truth is, whether it's innate or not, we don't know. There's no label on me that says I'm 20% this, I'm 40% this, and I only have 20% grit. So that's all you can get out of me. We don't come with those labels. Uh, and as such, we should probably look at, at especially kids, with their I can before their I can'ts, right? And I think it's a really important piece. I also think about these athletes, um, and then we'll talk about the environment here in a second. These athletes, they're not always perceived as nice. Mm. You know, I, I don't know. I've never worked with either of those four. Uh, I certainly have worked with, in my opinion, athletes that are at the top of their game and best in the world in their sport. Not in my opinion. I, I know it to be the case because they've collected those accolades. And they are, can I curse on here? Uh, can, I curse, can I curse on here? No, of course, of course. 
They are motherfuckers sometimes. Yeah. They are, when I say relentless in the pursuit of improvement, they are like that with their teammates. And you watch that in the documentaries that you've seen. Now, do they mean to be that way? Maybe, or maybe not. But they're trying to get somewhere and they need you, Jordan's stuff, which was widely shown. Or they just are like, I have to have this in order to get there. Now, do they mean to be that? Are they trying to be mean to you? I don't know. I'm not in their head. But I know that they are relentless in their pursuit, and they need you to step up to that level, right? And so that is sometimes misconstrued, but they're trying to get someplace. I mean, what, what are we doing here? You know, they're no different than Elon Musk, right, or anybody else on their, on, their, on their way to changing the world in this particular sense, right? Is there another way to do it? Well, I don't know. Probably. But if you're trying to get there and you're in a team sport, Right? Because if you look at the individuals in individual sports, they are also like that. But they don't need anybody else to get there. Right? The Lance Armstrongs and what, however you feel about them or not, the Serena Williams, the Tiger Woods, they are like that. Right? Mm. But it doesn't make them bad people. It makes them relentless in the pursuit of improvement and being their best and being the greatest. Right? And so I wanted to throw that out there as well. And I think it's up to us to, to nurture that. You know, If you think about Phil Jackson and how he managed that, he was a great – person to have up there because he's so smart and so thought-filled. He was nurturing that and managing it and managing some of the times where, you know, Jordan punches Steve Kerr, you know, and then Steve says to him and then they manage that relationship. Again, I love that piece. But it's managing that, right? So now let's go to the environment. To me, the environment is everything. I've written about it in books. Um, I have an upcoming book as well that I've written about it in and I talk about it with coaches and, and, it's, and for me, it's, it's everything. And, and especially when you're talking about kids, right? Yeah, yeah, pros, of course. Um, but, but the environment that you create and providing everybody the opportunity to maximize their individual potential in a team environment is critical, right? Because every one of those athletes is different. And if you look at Barcelona, you look at Real Madrid, you look at Manchester United, you look at Liverpool, they're all different. And guaranteed, Jurgen Klopp treats every one of those guys um, differently. Right? Because they are all different. Right? Maybe he puts an arm around, you know, Sadio Mane, but he gives a kick in the rear to James Milner. I don't know. Right? But they're all different personalities. And that's, again, the great thing about good coaches is that they create an environment to look at that particular athlete and go, this is what he or she needs to get there, whatever the there is. And if we can get there, there, here, and this person's here at the same time, and all of a sudden, pop, 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 and everybody's flying at the same time, again, you have Liverpool. And that which pains me, by the way, because I'm a United fan. Um, but it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to watch. And so I think the environment um, that you create as a coach to, to provide opportunities for group cohesion, to provide opportunities for relentless pursuits of improvement, right, um, and to help folks manage pressure and to create chaos within reason, right, is really what that environment is about, for each individual athlete at different levels. This exists at 10 years old. This exists at 12 years old in a rational approach. You know, you're not building world champions here. You're building 12-year-olds, but let's maximize their opportunity to improve, to manage pressure, right? To be the best version of themselves that they can be in this environment, and there are ways to do that. And, and you know, there are countless books out there that create environments, you know? Um, and people, but yeah, I think I think doing that, um, the, the environment is, is huge for not only those four players, but for everybody, you know, and and for for you know for everybody to to reach their best version of themselves. Lee, I love how you even set up that environment because I know you have a, a younger son that plays football, soccer, um, in in three. America. Oh, three, all all three play. That's, that, that's, that's great. And all three of them play in America. Yep. Okay. And America has a unique platform. It has a unique platform in development. And I know it's taken a change in development with mm -hmm. this whole Corona. Now it's uh, changing things up with from the DAs it used to have. I mean, before DAs, it didn't have DAs. It was ODP and it's keep transitioning and improvement. Mm -hmm. You are a parent. Okay. And you've worked with elite. Mm -hmm. So now I want to get down to the youth environment yep. and we can even discuss youth elite as well as youth potential elite and trying to map it out into maximizing them 
maximizing it. Maybe some parents have the resources and the household and they want to do it, but they also, they don't want to be a helicopter parent. They don't want to overcoach their own kid and ruin the experiences as well. Mm-hmm. How do you use both hats that you experience as a parent, as a sports psychologist, in creating now that environment to maximize, say, from if they're starting out from seven yeah. to going up, if you st- see them becoming a, a professional, you know, how do you create that environment and how, as a parent, you coach it and how do you select your coach what are the qualities you look for in coaches too because i think it's not the only the parent it's a collaborative team between coach and parent yeah well let's let's first start out with our role as parents i mean um if it's uh soccer we're talking about i mean it's about putting a ball in front of them as early as possible mm. on buyers a, a good friend of mine Tom is big in the youth scene and he talks about soccer starts at home and he's totally right. Put a ball in front of them. Um, give them the opportunity to love it. You know, if they love it, cause that's the number one thing. If they love mm-hmm. it and they show a desire to improve, find that right environment, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, as they grow, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, it's about then continuing to ask them, is this something you want to pursue? You know, and it's not always a direct question, You'll see it. Do they go and train? Do they say they want to get better and then they don't train? And then as they get 12, 13, 14, 15, they've got to start to take that, that huge ownership piece, right? Because you can, you can create a great, the, the best environment in the world. Um, but if the kid doesn't want to do it, then, then they're not going to get better. And that's the bottom line. But I have found, especially with my sons, um, giving them an opportunity to love it and to watch it on TV when it's always on TV in our house. So it's easy. Um, then, then provides that, that, that passion and you have to have a passion for it. If you don't have a passion for it, you're never going to do it when stuff is tough. My older ones had some tough times. He had uh, patella tendinitis, which is Oscar Schlatter's on the patella there at 11, 12, 13. He's been smaller than a lot of kids and he's had to grit and grind and that happens. You know what I mean? Um, and that happens. And if you love it, then you're going to push through. And now he's, He's 15, you know, be, you know, be 16 soon. And, and he's, um, he's growing, you know, he's going to be the tallest Hancock in history, I think. And, um, you know, so it's been fun to watch him quite honestly deal with the, the difficult times. And so my conversations with him, I've always said around, look, if I could change this all and make it easier for you, I wouldn't dare because this is what makes, um, makes you decide if you love it or not. And you want to grit and grind through it. And if you want to be a pro, which he says he does, you think it's going to get easier? You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind, right? And so I think providing an opportunity for them to love it and then being there for them as they start to go through that time of, do I really love it? And helping them answer those questions and provide a platform for them, if they do love it, to continue to grow is key. Selecting the coach is massive. Um, I'm very fortunate with my older one that um, we pulled him out of an MLS environment for about three years ago and he was fine. You know, he's doing well and, um, you know, it would probably still be there. Wasn't the right environment for him. And not to say that it, not to say that that was the case for everybody, but I knew, I knew that there was a coach that he needed to be around. And this particular coach is the director of a, of the club that he's at now. And it's, he's fantastic. You know, he has a long-term vision of, of improvement of the individual over the team, period. Mm-hmm right? And giving every kid an opportunity to play in a high-level environment. We're talking about one of the best non-MLS clubs in the country. And, and he looks at every individual as giving them an opportunity to play. And so, number one, giving the individual an opportunity to develop within a team environment, which is key. Number two, he gives a shit about my kid. And that's really important to me, right? And he'll talk to, he'll talk to my son, as he would every other kid and treat them as a human being. And that's a really important piece to me as well, because while my son says, I want to be a pro, I'm trying to build young men, you know, and I would like you to go to college first. Thank you very much. Um, and so that's a really important piece to me. And so treat him as a young man. Right. And of course the playing style, you know, has to be there. You know, I'm not, I'm not up for this nonsense of, you know, whatever else winning games. I mean, if you're a good coach, you're going to win games anyway. Right. But the goal has to be to play, right. And to give him an opportunity to, to play, a game that is of, of, of quality, right? And whatever your style is, 
it's not for me to say, but it's can you play? And are you teaching him to play the game the right way? And that's a really important piece to me, right? And so developing the individual, looking at my son as a person first, um, and then, of course, learning to play and all the things that, 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 that go along with that type of curriculum is, is critical. And when you have those pieces, that's really what you're looking for, you know? And I don't care what league you're talking about, you know, ECNL, DA, ECRL, DA2, MLS, DA. I don't even know what the leagues are about here. Find that coach and put them with that coach, right? And when you do that, you're good. Now, does the club have to be of quality? Yeah, of course. But you'll find that if your coach has those qualities, um, they're going to create a great environment for your son or daughter. And I think that that's really what you're looking for when you're, you're thinking about that with youth soccer. And there are plenty of great resources out there, um, parenting organizations and soccer parenting, stuff like this that can help steer you in the right direction. But, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. This is hard sometimes for parents to, to see that because I think a lot of times, especially in Cal South, I live in, in Southern California, you know, you can throw a rock and find a good team. And then that team – wins games. Does that mean that they're coached well? No. Because there are a lot of good players here and you can win games fairly easily. Is that really the mark of a good coach? I mean, not all the time at the youth levels. That just means you probably have the biggest, strongest, fastest kid at 12 years old and the big kid in the back kicks it to the big kid in the front and all of a sudden that coach has a resume. Garbage, right? So if, if you are a parent, it is hard sometimes, and you've got to ask a lot of questions and find somebody who's a trusted source of information. I'm very fortunate that I have friends and colleagues in, in different MLS clubs, and, and if, if I think I have a question that I don't know because I don't have all the answers, I'll ask them. Um, yeah, so I'm, I think finding those good coaches is, God, it's easier said than done sometimes for parents that aren't in the know, you know? Um, yeah. Um. If we discuss your role as a parent and scenarios, you know, I think a lot of parents that are just getting started, they're maybe it's their oldest kid, they've never experienced a platform, and um, maybe they don't understand the game. Maybe they're not um, privileged like you to have colleagues within the structure uh, of soccer and knowing how to properly map. There are times where that first game, um, your child did not get the minutes that every parent feels they uh, the child deserves, and you see him feeling the pain, feeling that part. You knowing as a uh, psychologist within the game at the highest level, those are parts of it. And mm-hmm. if they go at the higher level, they're going to experience moments like that. Mm-hmm. Where is that fine line of stepping in if uh-huh. you feel like the coach has crossed the line? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's berating it maybe, or Taking a step back, and if your ch- child comes this hard, I think there was a Van Persie point um, that oh, the clip. It was fantastic. You know, great moment of that. Where do you find that line of saying, "I'm not going to step in"? I'll tell you that. Look, these are moments that you, if you feel you didn't like it, maybe your child is 11, maybe your child is 12. What's that age you actually say, "I still won't step in"? Mm-hmm. And I got to ch- send my child back and maybe tell him certain things that if you didn't like it, you go say that to the coach. And if you, and if you feel like you should step in, you should step in, but you don't step in, in a moment where you feel like you're handicapping. And I think a lot of parents, they don't know when is those moments mm-hmm. and how would you, as a parent, as a sports psychologist, knowing those development stages, those ages when do you know? And yeah. how do you, how do you um, parent it? That's a really good question. So I, number one, you know, I, I am not above any of these feelings. I have experienced all of them, you know, as a parent, being pissed off that my son hasn't played X amount of minutes or didn't get in this game or wasn't in at this particular time or whatever it is. I'm not above any of those feelings. I will say that I work to manage them. And I think that should be in all of us, right? That, that's a societal thing that you would have to do at a job anyway. You know, would you burst in and yell at your teacher, at your son's teacher? No. You would be thoughtful about your emotions and you would send an email that was hopefully respectful and say, these are my concerns. And I think 
acknowledging your emotions as a parent is really important. Um, first, I am obviously in a unique position in that I know most of the coaches that my sons play for because I will have coached with them or I will have worked with them. But I treat that with the utmost respect and I work very hard to not engage with them um, because I know I have a line to them if I really wanted it. And so that's also really important is because you have a teacher's ear or a coach's ear doesn't mean you should bend it all the time, right? Mm. Because at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, those kids have to learn that if they want to communicate with the coach and they're not happy with something, maybe you should go talk to the coach, right? Or maybe I will give a heads up to the coach, hey, hey coach, so I'm, you, I'm, I'm encouraging my son to come talk to you. He has some questions about some minutes that he did or didn't play. And I'm just giving you a heads up that he's going to come talk to you, right? And so I think those are important to empower the kid because, again, this is a – if you love it enough, you can go talk to the coach and you can talk to him or her. Now, there are times where you do have to step in as a parent, period, right? If, if there's an abusive situation or you feel that it's totally um, unfair or unwarranted, but you got to be thoughtful about that, you know, and really be thoughtful about do – is this a road you want to go down? You know, and there are times where I've left it alone and it's like, I'm not doing this, right? And there are times where I've engaged, you know, um, and I'm not suggesting I'm always right. But I think acknowledging your feelings and then being thoughtful about engaging your teacher, right? Engaging your coach, right? In this particular case and how that might go down, but empowering the athlete to take care of business him or herself is key. With my older one, I don't do anything. It's like, you want this? You go talk to your coach, period. He's 15. You know, you have to have a relationship and you want to fight for it, go fight for it. You know, if not, maybe it's not the place for you, you know, and that, that's, a, that's an important piece for him. You know, but, but having said that, I trust the coach, right? So if you trust the coach, you trust, you trust that coach, there's, it's easy, you know, because it's like, go. He will be rational and reasonable with you. And if you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Maybe you need to go and work hard enough. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not putting enough work in. What do you want from me, you know? Um, but again, that there's a, there's a, there's a presumptive piece there, and that you tr you trust you trust the teacher who's in charge of your your child's development, you know, and that's a really important starting place because if you don't have that, it sounds like we probably shouldn't be there, you know. And, and I've said that to to players as well. It's like because I've coached, you don't want to play for me, you know. Or the parent says something, it sounds like you don't trust me. See you later, you know, because it's just the way it has to go. But the trust piece is really important. Um, you hear that you I said that with athletes earlier too. So yeah, God, finding that coach key, key. It's, it's easier said than done. Oh, 100%. And especially because a lot of those great coaches is probably if, if you view it as great, it's their full-time careers and probably mm -hmm. in the youth game, there's not a lot of clubs that can afford them. Uh, um, totally true. You know, and that's that's a tough part. And to be fair, a lot of them, they don't like to deal with that much access to parents having to probably walk across the field at any moment where the higher value coaches are separated. Even if you don't agree, you're forced to, if it's, you're a fan of Man United and you don't agree after Alex Ferguson, the coaches that took over and, you know, you're tolerating it and you see which, what is the next step to take it into the thing, but you don't have that access. I think the unique platform of the youth game, parents have unlimited access at any moment. And, that's, and that's not good. You know, that's not good. But this is too, I, sh I should say this, because while you are looking for the coach, you, you are looking for the club. Mm. Um, and you, there are a lot of really good directors of coaching out there. In MLS clubs, you know, I know three or four that I would send my oldest to in a second if we lived there. Mm. I know those guys because I've coached with them or I've been on staffs with them. I trust them intimately. Mm. I mean, just I would trust them with my own son, right? Um, and you will find those in your area, but you do have to ask those questions. And the reason I say that is because then you want to have parents going crazy. There is a management that you manage them, you know, and, and yeah, the coach can do that. But if the club sets the tone, it's like we don't. We don't put up with that. 
then all of a sudden the culture is built where it's mutual respect. And if you do have an issue or the coach isn't doing his or her job, then those coaches are held to task because coaches are not above reproach. You know, there's no reason a coach shouldn't have be able to have a conversation with a parent. They should be able to have a conversation. Um, but yeah, there are expectations on both sides. And I think like any good school, you know, if the school is of quality and the curriculum and the principal is of quality, the school and most of the teachers are probably pretty good. And if not, then you can deal with that one. So yeah, anyway. No, I, I, I think that's vital. I think you're right. There's At times there are decent coaches, good coaches under poor leadership and directors of the club. Sure. And they're handcuffed because they're sending a message. But if the directors that are setting that leadership, and it comes down like we've talked about leadership, we've talked about trust, these words have gone down throughout this whole interview and this dialogue we've been having. And it's so vital, you know, in the end of the day, as a parent, you trust them. So, okay, you trust them. There are moments in that trust, it gets tested. And you're like, maybe this one day, your son does not get one minute. Mm-hmm. He's a 16-year-old. It does not get one minute. You see him dying and it's killing you inside because he's your blood. It's dying inside. And you're like, oh, man, I trust the coach so much. And it's that moment that you're like, okay, I got, and he's 16, he's 17. He's got to take care of it, figure out why. And if he's got to work harder for it, he's got to work harder for it. That's part of it. But those are, those are painful moments. If a parent doesn't trust it, could right off the bat say, I'm stepping in. That's disrespectful because when you go, like you said, in a classroom, yelling at a teacher in front of a session, and, yeah. we know, and, and you as a parent, you've probably at the youth game have experienced parents, not yourself, but other parents running. You're like, what is this? On yeah. another, on the other side, I, I think. Stories. I have stories. That's the, that's the crazy thing about youth soccer in America, uh, where it's that they're paying to play. And yeah. sometimes I think when the message is, you're paying to get developed, not to play. If you want to play for free, you can go to Sunday League, you can play here. You're paying to get developed by a professional coach. Yeah. He's been around the game, he's played, he's coached. So you're paying for development, not to play. And some people that feel like they're paying to play, they're, they're entitled to their voice. They might, not, they might not know anything. At least, Lee, you've, you've worked with elite individuals. You've coached. You've been in the game. You understand the game. There are individuals that don't even know the sport, mm-hmm. have never been in athletics. Mm-hmm. And just because they read a couple books, because this so-so coach says this, they got to go give their two cents. Mm-hmm. And that to, that to us has kind of at part hindered about quality coaches coming in sure. and people trying to grow the development game. So I truly appreciate you um, giving your perspective and the dialogue has been fantastic. I truly appreciate that. I have one question for you. It's a fun one. We do it with all our um, guests um, and I want to kind of open it up to as broad as it can because I really want to know how that came for you. Obviously, you love the game of football, so it might be around the game. But if it goes to any sports team, that's fine. So I want to get your favorite sports team of all time, your favorite player of all time. Uh, And like I said, it can go, and the reason I say it can go in any direction, if it's a childhood experience you've had, if it's anything, I want to know how did it come about. If you oh can go, go into that. So to, to us, that always be, uh, is fun because the stories behind how this is your favorite team, how it became your favorite team, and this is your favorite player. I am going to really struggle here. <clears throat> favorite is really hard for me because I know that that's like one thing. When I was a kid, I was a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Mm. I don't know why I'm from Arizona. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't watch too much football anymore. Um, in terms it's the of, colors. It's the colors. I don't know what it was. Yeah, <laughs> yellow was, was class. But um, I mean, my favorite team is Manchester United. It's it's mm. the team that stirs um, emotion in me. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up in Tucson, and the U of A Wildcats basketball team actually mm. Steve Kerr and Sean Elliott and this group went to the Final Four. And I remember that that team when I was a kid stirred emotion in me. And I would get angry, like throwing stuff at the TV when they lost. Mm. And as I grew up and I was able to follow 
Manchester United through Soccer America, which was an old publication back in the day. I would follow them, and I and I would I got emotional about them. And as I would get to watch them over time, when the games would come to the states, why did you get why did you get emotional? Just if we can I get don't into that. know why. Oh, okay. I don't. That's a thing. I think mm. about love, you know, and passion. I wish I had an answer. I just mm. loved. Just, I don't know, the way that they played and the personality that I was able to witness during those Alex Ferguson years with, you know, that, that, that class of 92, mm. um, with Cantona, you know, with, with the personalities that came and then, the, and then of course the winning, it's, it's intoxicating, right? And then that... But the way in which they did it and then the leadership and, and just the, the – I felt it. And and I always would just just love it, you know. And I don't know. I don't have a favorite player. My favorite player of all time is Messi. Mm. I just love watching him play. He stirs that same emotion in me that I can't explain. And maybe that's football. That it's, a, it's emotion sometimes. It's like, why do you love it? I don't know. Why do you love pizza? Because it tastes good. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. It's good. Yeah. I love Messi. You know, I'm watching him move and the way he does things is amazing. But, yeah, United, it just stirs something in me. And we, I, we took the boys last year to Old Trafford for the first time. And, um, and it was just great experience. I had amazing tickets. And, and the game was good. It was right at the end of Solskjaer's you know, start. And I think we played Bournemouth and won, like, four one or five one and it was just heaven you know i so i think i think the answer in a very convoluted way is united because they stir that emotion in me you know and and as i painfully watch liverpool win the title i see my friends that are liverpool fans and they have it you know and they they feel it and, and it's just, it's in there you know um están tu sangre is the uh, <laughs> For a while, I was in there, you know, and I feel it. Yeah, I feel it. It, it. I, I think that says it all. I think um, there is that's a priceless feeling going to a pub, watching a Man United. Maybe earning, or even that experience you went to the Theater of Dreams mm-hmm. at the stadium. The the exhilarating feeling you got next to the fans that get that same passion at you of you within a team. It's life or death mm-hmm. it's you know you lose you're not doing anything that whole day yeah, you, okay. win, you win you're good you I know feel it i'm like i'm not watching this is stupid so so it's that those feelings because i know at the lowest it's miserable but yeah. at the highest it's i mean the year United won the Champions League with Ronaldo. The year United won this, that moment, you're watching it. Wherever you're at, you don't forget where you were at. You're watching those games. I watched that trouble in 99. I watched it beat Bayern Munich. I remember it like it was yesterday. I watched that game, and I watched the end of it, and I remember going to training. I was coaching at the time, kids. and Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember like it was yesterday. And it, but the funny part is you picked Messi over Ronaldo being a United fan. Messi just is just... He's just delicious. He's just so, ah, uh, so fluid and smooth, and I mean, it's no contest. No contest. I, I agree with you. You know, I respect Ronaldo for all the work ethic and all everything he's put. He is as good as it gets. I understand. I'm never going to debate that. But the thing is, I think the Messi's is the same thing as the Ronaldinho. I think it's the same thing as Diego Armando Maradona. Mm-hmm. I think. The way they step on the field, you're like, you don't know what's going to happen with the ball. If you asked me to pick a player to win one game, I'd pick Ronaldo. I would. Hmm? I would just pick him. I think he's got it in those moments, and he has shown it. I would pick him. Is it that MJ thing? Not sure. I just know that if you, if it's 0-0, zero, zero, he's going to get you 1-0. He'll get hmm. it. He will get it. And, and I'm not suggesting Messi wouldn't, and maybe he's a close second, but if you ask me the better player, I'll take Messi. If you ask me a one-off, I'll take Ronaldo. To, to end it, is it environment or innate what that last thing is with Ronaldo? Is it environment or innate that made that become who he is right now? It's a mix. 
<laughs> mm. Answer like your favorite question. Mm. You know, your favorite. I don't have an answer. I'm not good at favorites. No, perfect, perfect. Lee, again, a pleasure, a pleasure. But before I want to close it out, I want to give the floor to you to close it out. Anything you have going on? Any um, any platforms? Any books? Anything our audience can kind of get their arms around, attack, and kind of you know grow from. Uh, I think during this these times, I yeah. think um, especially this year, 2020, I yeah. think we're looking for stuff to help us build our own foundations. So um, I'll give the floor to you and um, to take us from there. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I am actually starting a podcast. Mm. A colleague and friend, this kid, Jimmy Conrad, he's an ex-US international and um, we're just going to start releasing them this week, I think, or next week. So, nice. Minds Your Business. Mm. Um, we've had some good guests on, so you'll hear those. So, check that out. Um, people want to get a hold of me. I'm rarely on Twitter, but I go on there sometimes. Dr. Lee Hancock, at Dr. Lee Hancock, or drleehancock.com is my website. So, if you have questions, you can hit me up. I'm doing a project, a couple of projects, but one namely with actually a guest that you talked about, Tony Strudwick called Toolbox, mm. and it's going to be an individual player app. Um, so look for that in time. So it's it's really, I think, a smart way to build an individual development program, and it's an app. And uh, everything from physical training to mental training, which is obviously my piece, to any technical and tactical stuff, which there are a bunch of stuff out there on the internet, but I think what this one does uniquely is lays it out in a way that you can create your own individual development plan with all four pillars. So I think that's amazing and look for that. But um, apart from that, I'm just living. I'm waiting for this June bloom to go away so I can go down to the beach. But uh, that's it, man. That's it. Thanks for having me. No, our pleasure. 